when I was a kid, I was in, I was, I was born seven weeks early. I was a, pre, a preemie. I have a twin sister. And these are just pictures of us in the hospital. And both of us were given these, these white stuffed bears, white teddy bears. And so I actually, all my childhood memories, I have this white teddy bear. And so being the inventive, creative kid that I was as a child, I called my white teddy bear White Bear. It was a very, very confusing name. But I grew up like cherishing this toy. It was like the stuffed animal. I still have it today. I've passed it on to my daughter. She's now five years old and like the most comforting item for her. If she's trying to like get us to hang out with her at night and stay up, stuff like that. She says, hey, I just don't feel safe in my room. I just need your white bear. And so she'll get it and she'll take it to her room. When I was six years old, I lost my white bear. I had taken it everywhere with me and I just could not find it. That thing was gone and it was gone for months. And so as we're getting up to Christmas, I, I just, I'm beside myself, I cannot find this white bear. Now Christmas morning, I open up the present and sure enough, inside is a brand new white bear. Problem was, it wasn't the same. Like there was no replacing that stuffed animal. Absolutely no way. And so another few weeks go by and I'm in my room, and this is typical Michael, I look under my bed, and there, not in a pile of clothes, not, not covered up in a blanket, sitting right there on the floor is my white bear. And so now 25 years later, that's still in our family, and we absolutely love it. Now, I think all of us have had experiences like this. Like, there's just something innate within us. When we lose something that's valuable to us, whether it's a person or a possession, that, that we, just, we just feel it. We, there's something in us that, that knows that when that thing's gone, in our fear of never getting it back, that we have an emotional response, sometimes an even physical response. It's especially true when these things have to do with provision, the, the ability to make sure that we will be safe on a daily basis, and people that are dearest to us. So the boy who loses his stuffed animal, he will... He will look harder, he will work harder, he will be more diligent at finding that stuffed animal than he's probably ever worked hard in his life. And some of you are kind of in this situation in life. The teenage boy who, whose girlfriend breaks up with him, he will work harder and more diligent about winning her back or figuring out what went wrong than almost anything he's ever done in his life. And the man who's trying to provide for his family, who loses his job, will work harder and more diligent at finding a replacement for that than, than possibly anything he's ever worked for in his life. And when the stuffed animal is found, and when the girl is won back, and the new job is established, there's this, this peace, this joy, this celebration that takes over. Now Jesus knew, Jesus knew that there is a joy that's innate inside of us that comes out when lost things are found. And so he, he uses that emotion, he uses that illustration to point out something very, very real and something very, very true that he needed to address with people around him. So today we will be in Luke 15. Luke 15. If you have a Bible, turn there to Luke 15. If you have a Bible app and you want to turn to the translation, I'll be in. It's the ESV this morning, English, English Standard Version. Luke 15. 
So in Luke 15, Jesus' ministry is running full force. He's going all over the place. He's performing miracles. He's healing people. He's feeding people. He's teaching everyone who will listen to him about the kingdom and how God's kingdom has come to earth. And as he grows in popularity, he also grows in opposition. The bigger the crowds get, the more opposition he faces. Everyone has an opinion, but they're not all positive. And so he jumps in in Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, everyone. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The scene opens, and Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. And in the minds of the people around them, the tax collectors and the sinners were the lost causes of the world. No reason to give them any attention. But as Jesus draws the crowds, the Pharisees are looking on and they provide some commentary of their own. And as they do, they grumble. And they express their frustration that Jesus would spend any time with these people. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. Now, anytime Jesus tells a parable, it's to teach something. Jesus was a master storyteller, but he didn't tell stories just to have podcasts out there of him telling stories or anything like that. He wasn't some literary genius that only wanted to hear himself speak. He told stories to make a point. And so as we hear these parables, we have to ask the question, who is he trying to teach and what was he trying to teach them? Who is he trying to teach and what was he trying to teach them? Now, Jesus is about to tell three stories. Now, they're each in a row. And each of them have an individual value to themselves, but taken collectively, they have an even more powerful message. And so we're going to cover all three. Three stories, one point, but all of them work together. Verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he, find, when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, now up until this point, it's just a story. It's just narrative. Jesus has not landed his point yet. But here he does in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Jesus, surrounded by tax collectors, by sinners, and by Pharisees, stares the religious people in the face. He says, this story's about you. you. You have to understand that the who in this story, in all three of these stories, are the incumbent religious leaders, those people who have grown up being part of the faith. And so we need to be very, very careful about what shoes we put ourselves in when we hear parables. And one of the things that I just want to kind of put out there before we start thinking more and more about ourselves is that, that maybe, just maybe, that we need to understand that us in the church who have grown up in the church may trend more towards the Pharisees than we do to Jesus, may trend more towards the Pharisees than even the lost do. And so I just want us to be open-minded about what the Lord could be saying to us through what he said to the Pharisees. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, we have to understand a little bit about who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees, like the actual word Pharisee, means separated. And so the Pharisees are this religious group of people that, that are titled separate, meaning they keep themselves distant from anything that is not like them. And so there was a lot of pride, a lot of self-righteousness in being holy when other people are not holy. 
Typically in the New Testament, when you hear somebody boast about their own purity, their own righteousness, their own piety, it's a Pharisee. It's somebody who's made it a point to keep themselves separate from those around them. And Jesus looks at them and gives them clarity. What he wants to make sure they understand is that separation from others is not what makes you pure. You will not gain righteousness by being separate from. And he takes it a step further, and, and he just he, he goes through and he says, Hey, in the story of the lost sheep, do you know who went after the sheep? The shepherd. But why was it the shepherd that went after the sheep? Because he's responsible. And so the question the Pharisees have to be wrestling with and the question that we have to be wrestling with right now is who is responsible for going after the lost sheep? He goes on in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. It continues on, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When someone loses something that's valuable, they look for it. Every single time. When someone loses something that's valuable, they look for it every single time. And when they find it, they rejoice. It's a pattern. It's a formula. Everyone does this. The question we have to ask, the question the Pharisees had to ask is, were those people worth finding? We'll step back into the context. Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees are saying, why are you wasting your time with them? And what they had said is, those people have no value. For me, as I study this passage, one of the things I'm increasingly convicted by in my life is identifying the types of people that I find no value in. And for me, I grew up in a socioeconomically diverse area with a racially diverse area. And so for me, I don't deal with racial issues or financial issues or socioeconomic issues to determine who has value, who does not have value. For me, I grew up in a competitive, competitive environment. And so the, the, the areas in which I struggle to see value in others is not when somebody grew up poor, not when somebody grew up in a different environment for me. It's when they've put themselves in the situation they're in. When I look at their rough situation in life and I can track every single decision they made and say, you knew better, it's your own fault. And I sit there and, and, and the, you know, the whole idea of, of working hard to make things right and stuff like that, they've put themselves in that spot. And I look at them and say, You chose. You chose to move away from wisdom. You chose to go the selfish route. You chose to put yourself there. And I find myself lacking sympathy and empathy and compassion, all because they did it to themselves. And you know what happens when those types of people wander away from the faith and wander away from wisdom and wander away from what's healthy? I don't go after them. Because for me, I've rationalized, I've processed, and as shameful as it is, I've looked at them and said, they have no value to me. And I think all of us are wired in different ways. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are classes of people, there are groups of people, there are types of people that we just don't see value in. And it's not the same for all of us. It's not one size fits all. For some of us, it may be the people that rejected us. 
For some of us, it could be a certain race. For some of us, it could be a socioeconomic group. For some of us, it could be a political ideology. I don't know what it is for you, but I would be, if we're honest with ourselves and we allow the Spirit to kind of do a little bit of surgery, I think we'd be able to identify those types of people. That for us, when they're gone, we don't feel it. So Jesus goes on. Verse 11. And as he goes into this story, I, I, we have this idea in the New Testament that Pharisees are bad, Jesus and his disciples are good. Pharisees are bad, Jesus and his disciples are good. And I, I think we miss out. Do, do you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Do you know who Jesus said that to in an individual conversation? One of the religious leaders. Like, we have to understand that Jesus is appealing to the Pharisees. He's appealing to the scribes and Pharisees to say, hey, repent from the way you're processing this. I did not come here to reject the Pharisees. Jesus did not come to put them in their place. He came to restore the right relationship between Israel and God. And part of that entails restoring the relationship between the leadership of Israel to God. And so as he goes into this story, I want you to understand that this is not Pharisee bashing. This is a strong appeal for them to understand the will of God. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Meaning, Father, I want my inheritance. Now you are dead to me. And so he divides the property between them. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. He ran far away from the father and he had no plan, no plans of coming back ever. Now there are people sitting around Jesus when he was telling this story who had actually lived this out. They had set their face away from God and decided that they were going to walk away from God and never look back. And then Jesus shows up. And those same people that had rejected the father find themselves drawn to the person of Jesus. So the younger son intentionally leaves and travels far away, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose across that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He was at the lowest of lows. He had rejected his father. He had wasted his inheritance. He had done this to himself. It was his fault. He was a terrible person, and he was getting everything he deserved. Now, if I'm listening to this story, if I'm in that crowd, and I'm listening to this story, my default is to write that guy off. He's not worth it. He's not worth the time. He's not worth the energy. Track it. He rejected his dad. He cashed out too soon. He took all his money and he wasted it. It's his own fault. Don't waste your time going after somebody like that. He's not worth it. I'm so glad Jesus is different than me. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy 
to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Even the status of a servant would have been a gift. We have to understand that even the status of a servant would have been a gift. He deserved nothing. Everyone listening to the story would have completely agreed with me. Reject the son. In fact, you're not rejecting the son. You're rejecting a stranger. He cut ties. He said, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. He took the status of son off his shoulders and said, I am your son no longer. You are dead to me. Everyone listening would have said, how, how prideful to come back and ask to even be a servant. But the story goes on. He arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's cut off. Doesn't even get to finish his speech. Doesn't even get to make the appeal to be a servant. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoot on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son. My, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. But not everyone. So it isn't in here. It's one of the incredible things that speaks to my heart and I hope speaks to the audience and speaks to the Pharisees. The story's not over. The who has not learned the what. This address is not to the sinners. This address is to the religious people, the church folk. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. I heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I've done everything you've ever asked of me. I've been a perfectly obedient person. I've served you well and always obeyed, and yet you've never given me anything. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours, when he came, who has devoured your property, do you know, you know how, by the way? You know when your, your youngest son took the inheritance and went off with it. Do you know how he wasted his money? He devoured your property with prostitutes. That's where your money went. And he comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him as if it's something to celebrate. As if seeing that guy return is something that should bring joy to us. Celebrate that, that father-hating, prostitute-loving son of yours. When he shows up asking to be fed. The wonderful father said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. I think Jesus is appealing to the Pharisees. I think he's, he's saying, Guys, you have to understand that when these sinners are repenting, it does not encroach on your status. 
You've always been with me. And my plan is that you will always be with me. Don't reject the Father because you're rejecting your brother. Verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees, the who? The religious leaders, the church people, and tells them the what? That when the lost are found, heaven celebrates. Now, at this point, I, I need to admit something. Um, I really tried to come up with a compelling and, and memorable like bottom line or main point for today's message. Um, in, in this scene, we've got these two clashings of worlds. We have Jesus surrounded by like tax, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, Patriots fans, and that kind of stuff. And then on the other side, we've got... <laughs> We've got Pharisees and their pre freshly pressed dresses or whatever they wore. And seriously, though, like we've got Jesus surrounded by sinners. We've got the religious people looking on. And, and the religious people won't even demean themselves to look in the eyes of the sinners. So Jesus rattles off not one, not two, but three stories. Compelling, convicting stories of seeking after the lost, and the celebration that occurs when the lost repent and are found again. And all I could come up with was a very non-Baptist bottom line. So here it is. When the lost are found, drinks all around. When the lost are found, <laughs> drinks all around. Okay, so, so we, we, have, we have to know that what Jesus wants the audience to understand is that the appropriate response the appropriate response when a lost person is found is celebration. And so as we close out, I want to just challenge all of us in a few different areas. And there's going to be this, this, this variety of convicting, compelling type questions. And one of the things you need to know about me is like one of my favorite things is to hear, to be asked, and to ask good questions. I love investigation. I love cutting questions. A lot of times when I make arguments with people, I don't make statements. I ask questions. And for me in my own life, my, my greatest areas of growth have been when hard questions have been asked of me rather than people telling me certain things. So, so in, this, in this whole parable section, we have Jesus' target audience. It's the Pharisees, a group of religious leaders who had separated themselves from sinners, separated them, themselves from sinners for the sake of personal righteousness. One of the things we have to understand is that personal piety our own personal holiness or the perception of holiness on us is not valuable enough to sacrifice relationships with sinners. And so who is it in your life that you have actively distanced yourself from because of how it might look to be around them? Who have you actively distanced yourself from because of how it might look to be around them? You're not going to preserve. You're not going to preserve your own holiness because you avoid being sneezed on by spiritually unhealthy people. It's not going to work that way. Asked a different way, who is it that you have a more meaningful relationship with in real life than you will admit in church because of what people might think? Who is it that you have a more meaningful relationship with outside of these walls than you're willing to talk about inside these walls because of what people in this room or this building might think? 
Now, his first story focuses on the lost sheep. And we read this story and we have to understand that the responsibility of seeking after the lost sheep fell on the shoulders of the shepherd. The person responsible for seeking after the lost is the one who has the understanding of the way back. The shepherd seeks the lost sheep because he knows how to get back. As believers today, we are tasked with seeking the lost because we are the ones who have the answer for how to return to the Father. So, are you carrying the message? Are you actively carrying the message that was entrusted to you upon your salvation? Are you carrying that message that was entrusted to you? Now, the second story is focused on the lost coin. And I've kind of revealed even some of my own value-centric type thinking when I think of different types of people. You seek a lost coin because it has value. So who is it that you have failed to seek because if you're honest, you see no value in? What socioeconomic group, what political party, what gender identifying, what individual made in the image of God and bestowed with infinite value because of the love of the Creator, what person have you neglected to seek after because you've not recognized them as valuable? And so Jesus' final story focuses on the lost son. And as, this, as the younger son returns, the older son is irate. But rather than focusing on the love of the father, he focuses on his own obedience. The older son, the faithful son, puts himself in a position that's no better than a servant. It's incredibly ironic. The younger son aspires to be a servant. And the older son lives as if he is a servant care about the father's love. cares about his own obedience. And yet when the son returns, he won't even recognize him as his own brother. And so he creates this false dichotomy. This idea that there are people who are worthy of the father's love, but not worthy of ours. God, you may love them. I'm not going to. And so here's a question I wrestle with. Anytime I serve people who don't have with people who do have, are the lost you're seeking and serving ministry projects or potential brothers and sisters in Christ? In our missional endeavors, are we serving ministry projects or potential brothers and sisters in Christ? The lost of this world are our lost brothers and sisters. They're not less than. They're, they're, they're not only worthy of a servant status. Their story is our story. They were lost and they can be found. But when they're found, they are not second-class citizens of the kingdom. They're not second-class church members. They're brothers and sisters, co-heirs in the kingdom. And so we have to ask this question, does our church reflect that? And before we answer that, we have to understand that the New Testament church did not. If you read the New Testament, the New Testament church takes it on the chin from their leaders for actually creating a divide. Like, the first century Christians had to be told that racial differences don't create two different classes of Christians. That, that religious background does not create two different classes of Christian. Socioeconomic things do not create two different classes 
of Christian. The early church, even some of those who walked with Jesus, had to be reminded that the people you're sharing the gospel with are not ministry projects. They're brothers and sisters in the kingdom. So, we've got to be honest and ask the question. In this community, in the greater Georgetown area, are there people, are there types of people that have a better chance of sticking in our congregation when they find Jesus than others? Have, have we operated in such a way that we go out and we share the gospel with ministry projects and potential brothers and sisters in Christ? And I, I just, I want us to maybe repent a little bit, mourn a little bit, that, that we have good old Baptist transfers that come over and join as new members sometimes. And this is typical for all Baptist churches. And we rejoice that we have those Baptist transfers and we don't mourn that those who have been found in Christ are not a part of our fellowship because they're ministry projects out in the community rather than brothers and sisters in Christ. When the lost are found, drinks all around because eternity has been changed for someone. They've returned to the Father. They've been made new, and we've gained a brother or sister in Christ. Praise God that we get to be a part of it. So here's my hope. I hope that we allow the Spirit to kind of cut a little bit deep today and kind of reveal some of our own tendencies and trends when it comes to valuing the lost. And I just, I want you to know that I'm committed to doing my part in, in tackling my own value system, or lack thereof, when it comes to devaluing those types of people. But I want, I want us to be a church, a, a parenting life group, a student ministry, First Baptist at large, that when we go seek after the lost, we are committed to, number one, celebrating when the lost are found, but bringing people in as brothers and sisters, co-heirs in the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are gracious enough to teach us rather than chastise, to make constant appeals for us to turn towards you and to understand your will for this world. I pray that we would be a people that find joy when the lost are found and are compelled to go and seek out the lost as potential brothers and sisters in the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.